Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's National Parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode 21, a bonus episode since this is coming out on our off week. Regularly scheduled episodes come out every other Tuesday. In this episode, Brian speaks with John Waterman, award-winning author, filmmaker, adventurer, and former park ranger about his new book, The First of Its Kind, Atlas of the National Parks, published by National Geographic. Next week, you may hear the first episode, our trip report, in our series on Isle Royal. If this is your first time tuning in, go back and listen to past episodes, including an interview with Ken Burns, or episodes on parks including Biscayne, Crater Lake, Everglades, Grand Canyon, Great Smoky Mountains, Olympic, Saguaro, Shenandoah, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Zion, and more. In our last episode, number 20, we share our highlights from 2019, what's coming up in 2020, and we answer a listener question about budget travel to the national parks. If you have a question or if you have comments, feedback, or if you want to share your own stories, tips, or recommendations, you can send us a message via Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or send us an email at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can also share with us what you want to hear on future episodes. Thank you to all of our listeners and financial supporters via Patreon for sharing in this national park adventure. Now let's get to the conversation. So welcome back. We have a another special episode here at Everybody's National Parks. I'm with John Waterman. Uh, he is an author of books including Running Dry, In the Shadow of Denali, Where Mountains Are Nameless, and others. He has written articles in the Washington Post, New York Times, Adventure, Outside, and Backpacker magazines. Uh, and right now, we are talking about his new book, Atlas of the National Parks, uh, which is being published by National Geographic. Uh, John, welcome. Pleasure to be with you. So I want to get into this book because it is not a guidebook. It is, uh, again, it's called an atlas, but it's not just a book of maps. It is something pretty comprehensive. And you know, when I first started flipping through this, and hopefully you'll forgive me and take this as a compliment, we're here actually, this is going to come out in January, but we're conducting the interview a few weeks before uh, Christmas and Hanukkah and all the holidays. I looked at this as the old Sears wish book that you would get as a kid and you would open it up and circle all the toys you want. I was going through this just thinking about all the trips I want to take. It was a wish book for me. And I think it speaks to how comprehensive it is, not just with maps, but there's science in there. There's illustrations. Obviously, there's text that you wrote describing the parks. Do you want to talk a little bit about the inspiration for the Atlas? Well, the inspiration, it was quite simple. The National Geographic asked me if I wanted to write the book. But that is attached to a lifelong passion for the national parks. I've been going to national parks for 43 years. So the National Geographic was interested in doing this because it had never been done before. And the National Geographic has collaborated with the National Park Service since before the National Park Service's inception in 1916. In fact, the National Geographic funded some of the Park Service to to the tune of about $80,000 back in that day, as well as extensively lobbying Congress to create this new department within the Department of the Interior. Since then, the National Geographic has continued to be involved in giving 
you know, members of Congress, special editions of the National Geographic magazine, for instance, in order to promote various national park concepts and establish national parks such as Denali and Glacier. All that to say that there's been a collaboration now for more than a century between the National Geographic Books and National Geographic Society and the Park Service. So it's a, a natural for the geographic. And although I was the sole author of this book, I worked with not only in collaboration with the Park Service in meeting with them and obtaining maps from them and restylizing uh, park maps for, for this particular book, there was a, a team of experts that I work with at the Geographic, including cartographers and photo editors and uh, text editors. So in that sense, it was a, a real team effort. I don't think that one person alone could have done this. Well, that makes sense because, one, it's comprehensive, and two, it occurred to me in reading the book, and, and uh, we were lucky enough to get a copy of it, is I could take out the chapter on, let's say, Smoky Mountains, and that could appear as an article in next month's National Geographic magazine. I mean, it has the same style and format in terms of maps, illustrations, great text to go along with, of course, the iconic National Geographic photography which is really visually arresting as well. So that is another way. Again, I first thought about it as the Sears wish book, but the other way I looked at it is this seems like it could be in next month's National Geographic magazine. So the theming is certainly uh, very consistent. Yeah, I agree. And as for a wish book, so be it, because I wanted to inspire people about each of these 61 national parks. Each of them, uh, as you know, is unique, and they're all different from one another. So I had to bear down and figure out the quintessence of each of these parks in order to write about them. It's a Sears wish book with a hell of a lot of science and tectonics and geology and history thrown in there as well. It does take a degree of introspection and science, and also you didn't shy away from the challenges the parks are facing as well. So it is not something that's you know, painting some sort of Pollyannish you know, aspect of the parks. Each chapter takes a very comprehensive look at the park and the contrast between kind of the iconic National Geographic photos, but then also an illustration on tidewater glaciers, for example, is something that, you know, you can learn a lot from as you're thinking about and planning your trips. I guess that was also part of the overall thrust of the, uh, of the book and the atlas. We didn't shy away from some of the issues that the parks are now confronting, particularly for the Everglades chapter. I finished a draft of the chapter, and I had a conference call with the editors, and I told them that there are some very grave issues within the national parks, and Everglades was representative of probably being the most endangered park of them all, and that we had to tell it as it, as it is. This is not the centennial celebration of the parks. This is an atlas, and we wanted to do upfront, journalistic, objectively done science. And to do that, um, we had to tell the story warts and all. So I, I think that in the end, I, I held off from proselytizing or writing an op-ed, and I got the chance to do that later. But in the book, if there were issues in each of these 61 parks, I didn't hesitate to bring them up. It's presented in a very matter-of-fact style, which I very much enjoyed. So you may have a, 
a great photo of a pileated woodpecker, and then you're going to have a discussion on the effects of climate change, which leads to my next question, John. So what are those challenges? Well, I think that there are several. Climate change is really the biggest, and under climate change, there are many subsets. There was a study done very recently at UC Berkeley that found that the national parks, more than most landscapes across the country, are much more fragile because they tend to be at high altitudes or in arid places that are more susceptible to changes in climate. So it behooves us from the get-go to be taking better care of these places, but we can only do that through a more comprehensive approach to reducing greenhouse gases. So the subsets of climate change, you know, among the the things that most of your listeners have heard or read about, the melting glaciers, the droughts, the extreme temperatures, there are subsets uh, that one of the grave subsets is the issue of uh, invasive flora and fauna species. That is, thousands of plants and animals that have been transported or inadvertently dropped off in these parks and have no natural niche in the ecosystem, and in many cases, no predators. For instance, in the Everglades, there's Burmese python has gone hog wild, and a study has shown that over the last decades that small mammal populations have just absolutely diminished throughout the Everglades. And there could be as many as tens of thousands of these Burmese pythons now in the Everglades. They're, as the name implies, they're from another country. Uh, and they are literally squeezing wildlife populations to death. They've been seen killing and eating alligators as well as a small deer. That continues out in the West. We have, for instance, something as innocuous sounding as cheatgrass. It even grows here in my backyard in Colorado, but uh, it replaces other plants and grasses, outgrows it, and quickly dries out, and it acts like kindling or for uh, you know the first lightning strike. And Many of the major forest fires and other subset of climate change that are occurring in western parks have more than a little to do with the fact that these parks are, in many instances, are overgrown with cheatgrass. So there you have it, too, an example of each flora and fauna species that are causing issues in the national parks that, that in many cases, that these parks are underfunded and ill-equipped to... Uh, roll up their sleeves and deal with these types of thorny biological issues. In fact, the current administration has proposed a $480 million budget cut for the national parks next year. And so the parks have all they can do just to keep up with routine maintenance, you know, cleaning the toilets and emptying the trash, and moreover, making sure the roads are safe and paved and the potholes filled. But even then, there is a, a deferred maintenance budget for the national parks now that exceeds $11 billion. So you can see that I could go on and on. Uh, the, these issues have begun to put a real dent in the integrity of these natural resources, these treasures uh, that are our national parks. Well, I wanted to pull on that a little bit because another, and look, we're completely simpatico with that. As a matter of fact, we're heading up to Glacier next year because, well, we want to see a glacier before they're gone. And so this is all, all, and we were down in the Everglades almost a year ago and saw some of the effects of the Burmese pythons. And in terms of climate change, in terms of, and the farming area, we saw, if, you know, 
really much in front of us on how these parks have been under attack. So we're sympathetical with that, but probably the other challenge as well is these parks are more popular than ever, um, not just with our own countrymen, but they're popular also internationally, where you have a lot of people coming in from around the world to come to our national parks. So there's the issues of loving them to death. And one thing, and I failed to mention this, that you're also a former park ranger. So you've, you've seen this not only as an author, but in your professional life as a ranger. Do you have some suggestions for us about how a visitor should manage that, how they should manage the loving to death? When should they visit? What should they do at some of these parks? Because at the same time, these parks are great and it's, it's always great to go to Zion or it's always great to go to Yellowstone. So how would you suggest? Well, I, I, if I may, I'd like to break that down a little bit. And, you know, I would be the first person to advocate for getting away from the automobile and getting out into the backcountry. But most of the people that go to our national parks don't have the luxury or, or the time or the inclination, let alone the, uh, there are many handicapped people that visit the national parks. So in one sense, the roadways within the parks are a bulwark against impact because it channels the people and keeps them in one place. For instance, Yosemite Valley, most all of that traffic is confined to the roadways within the central, quote-unquote, valley of Yosemite, while the rest of the park the numbers are, are relatively minimal in terms of impact. Well, but that's slowly changing, not only in Yosemite, but in places like Zion, where there are more people per square acre than any other national park, even though it's not the, the most crowded national park, while emphasizing that the parks have been protected for some time because the people are, are staying on the roadways, or for instance, riding the cruise ships into Glacier Bay if if those 90% of the people that go to Glacier Bay National Park in Alaska are on a cruise ship or a boat of some kind, and their impact is absolutely minimized, if not zero, but if you took those tens of thousands of people and had them in a kayak or built trails for them, the impacts would be phenomenal. But nonetheless, there are parks like Zion where the roadways and even the paved trails can no longer accommodate the sheer weight of numbers. And so to answer your question, I believe it's a simple thing, and it's complicated by the fact that we have to change the mandate, as it were, of of the national parks, because we have a, a paradox within the mandate of the national parks. They were created for all, accessible to everyone, and we're also supposed to preserve them for perpetuity. So that can be a contradiction when the parks are getting crowded. They're being loved to death. So I think that every park has to determine its own carrying capacity. That is, how many humans are too many humans in Yellowstone? And this is exactly what the superintendent of Yellowstone tried to do last summer. And as soon as he started talking about looking into some practical solutions and limiting visitation a little bit, he was out of a job, and the new superintendent of Yellowstone doesn't speak about limiting visitation whatsoever. And this is true at other national parks as well. This can't stand because we're going to destroy our parks if we keep moving in that direction. There's also a new policy that was put together by a council, put together by former Secretary of the Interior, Zinke, that decided that the parks would benefit from privatization which might be good in a couple of instances, 
But the idea of establishing wireless and allowing Amazon deliveries and putting electric bicycles on trails and so on and so forth is just not in harmony with the principles of the National Park Service, preserving nature and and allowing people to come and and leave their busy lives or their urban lives behind and uh, commune with nature. So we have a problem in philosophy right now. We're veering away from the best idea that we started so long ago, and we've upheld so well for so long. We've got to roll up our sleeves and start looking toward preservation. Preservation at this point is going to be a little bit more important than access. It's something Daniel and I wrestle with on our trips. And one thing that we've seen, and I love your advice on this, given that you have visibility into all of these parks, given your authorship of this book and your your past as a park ranger. You know, one thing we said is even in the most popular parks, try to get away, if you can, from the ground zero area. So for example, we went to Smokies and yeah, we spent a weekend in Cades Cove and, you know, we were stuck in traffic with everybody else going around the loop. But then we went all the way over to Catalucci on the eastern side of the park and we felt like we had the entire place to ourselves. I'm only slightly exaggerating. Or even in Zion, I was there with high school buddies. And of course we were in the valley and we did all the hikes that everyone does. But uh, we then went to Colob Canyon, kind of in a different area. And again, we felt like we had a piece of Zion National Park all to ourselves. Can you recommend in some of our more popular parks, some of these areas where you can still enjoy the grandeur of that particular park, but kind of be away from a lot of those heavily trafficked areas. And then you yourself perform a service by diffusing a lot of that concentration and, uh, of people and cars or whatever the case may be. Do you have a couple of parks in mind where, where, and some areas of those parks where you would recommend? Well, rather than steering people to specific parks, I encourage people to, if using this book, for instance, look at the numbers and those parks that are less visited are the places that you want to go. Parks to avoid are what they call, you know, the golden circle that includes Zion, Grand Canyon, Arches, where the state of Utah did an incredible marketing program and got people driving. Bryce is also included in that list. Perhaps avoid those 12 most popular parks or go in the wintertime, go in the off-season. That's also the best way to see these parks. And finally, do exactly what you have done. You discover that, particularly if you're willing to go camp overnight, as soon as you get more than uh, several miles off the trailheads, you're going to find that you have the park to yourself, or, or it would feel that way anyways. Even in crowded places like Zion, you can head into the backcountry and experience something that 95% of the people aren't going to experience. If you have the ability, we recommend that. And it's not hard. You don't have to be you know, dropped from a helicopter into some remote area of the park, generally speaking. Uh, my brother and I, a year ago, were at Crater Lake National Park, and we went on a trail, and we got 100 feet off the trailhead, and we were by ourselves for miles and miles and miles. And this was a very, very crowded, busy weekend. And this wasn't far away from from where everything was. But I, I also wanted to ask your advice on some of those other less visited parks, because I think that's good advice too. What parks would you recommend that are overlooked? And in your research and doing the book, you thought, boy, this is a nice uh, alternative or analog. For example, I'm told, and I haven't been to Kings Canyon yet, but I'm told 
if the crowds at Yosemite are too much, you go to Kings Canyon and it is a, um, is an open shot. Do you have some park recommendations that can serve as an analog to some of the more crowded parks? Well, certainly I do. And I'm going to give you a big list of them. So <laughs> oh, hit, hit me. people this is are good, really huh? listening hit, this is good and for inspired me. Yeah. by this, they won't go to one or two. But Kings Canyon and Sequoia are perfect examples, particularly Kings Canyon. And particularly in those two parks, which are managed as one, if you get off into the backcountry and away from the, the Sequoia groves that are uh, right on the road, you know, easy walking access. But then you have the least visited national park in the country, is Gates of the Arctic, entirely within the Arctic Circle in northern Alaska. There is no road access to that park. You'll have to fly in. You could walk in from the, a dirt road leading to the oil fields. After a couple of days walking, you get there. But that would be one extreme. But then there are places within the lower 48, such as Voyagers in northern Minnesota, if you're willing to take a a canoe trip into Voyagers, you can get away from the crowds or go fishing perhaps in Voyagers. And then you have out in the middle of Lake Superior, Isle Royale, which is one of the seldom visited parks. It's more than a thousand people a year go diving there because there are so many shipwrecks, but it's also the place where you can see a unique population of moose and recently reestablished wolf. Or then down into the Gulf of Mexico off the southern tip of Florida is dry tortugas, which is 90% water. And whether you're a diver or a snorkeler, uh, it's a great place to go see the uh, America's biggest coral reef. And on it goes. Uh, Canyonlands is less than an hour's drive away from Arches in the state of Utah, but Canyonlands doesn't have nearly the crowds because it doesn't have the, the kind of handy road access that uh, Arches does. And you can really lose yourself in, the, in a backcountry canyon hike there. And it doesn't have the easy, accessible, spectacular arches, although it has more than a few arches you have to discover on your own. And lots of petroglyphs and pictographs from the ancestral Puebloan people a thousand years ago. But the list goes on. Let me help you with that list because, uh, for, first off, you're, I'm salivating on the microphone right now because. <laughs> In particular, you, you poke the tiger in the eye because dry tortugas and voyagers are coming up rapidly on our list. And we just, well, just in August, we were in uh, Isle Royal, uh, which was amazing. And we uh, are working on a podcast series now. That's going to be one of our next series. But it, I agree with you. It was amazing. However, those places plus gates of the Arctic, dry tortugas, kind of tough to get to. Now, Canyonlands, it seems like it's a little bit more accessible. So is there a sweet spot of parks that are sometimes overlooked, but not too arduous? I mean, they're all a drive, at least, but not too arduous to get to that you could recommend. Well, my favorite park of them all is Denali. And far be it for me to recommend anyone climb the highest mountain within that park. In fact, the real wonders of that park are that you can go to Denali and you can't drive a private car up the 80-mile dirt road to Wonder Lake which is an all-day drive, really, if you're stopping and looking at the wildlife. But you can ride a free shuttle bus, and that is akin to, you know, in North America anyways, to visiting the Serengeti in terms of the amount of wildlife you'd see. So it's not an arduous affair. You don't have to be equipped for bears. You just have to bring a camera or, or your curiosity, and uh, you'll have an incredible experience there in Denali 
without much effort if you want to look at wildlife and hopefully get a glimpse of the mountain above. Oh, then there's uh, in the same state of Alaska that has 20,000 square miles of national parks. I'm going to blow your mind a little bit here, but I highly recommend riding a cruise ship into Glacier Bay, or if you can't stomach the crowds on a cruise ship, sign up for a tour on a smaller ship. Lindblad and National Geographic runs uh, trips into Glacier Bay, and the amount of wildlife you can see from a boat is just incredible, uh, as well as these tidewater glaciers collapsing into the water. Your impact on both of those parks, although it's a little more expensive to ride a boat into a place like Glacier Bay, is absolutely minimal because you're contained within the boat. And there are areas within the park that, where if you were to go kayaking, you could have the area to yourself without cruise ships. So uh, those are two that pop into mind that are easily accessible to people that might be handicapped or elderly or unable to hike very far that are just wonders of the world. And there are reasons why so many people come from foreign countries to parks like that. Uh, so once-in-a-lifetime experience. Right. What are some parks that are not far from major metropolitan areas that one can get to that either are A, overlooked, or B, there's a back door to the park or a less visited area of the park that, that you would recommend as well? In terms of accessibility, there are places like Shenandoah in Virginia that is easily accessible, although probably to be avoided during the fall foliage because it's so beautiful that everyone turns out and the Skyline Drive is packed with cars. Uh, but then I think of places like Saguaro, which is a park that's kind of split in two by the burgeoning metropolis of Tucson, Arizona, uh, that doesn't have the traffic of many of the other southwestern parks and is easily accessible. And then there's the Petrified Forest, which is even an even better bet uh, in terms of accessibility and, and for some reason just, just off the beaten path and hasn't gotten the traffic of many of the other southwestern parks. Yeah, those are good recommendations. The Tucson one in particular, because you know, literally Tucson's in the middle of both sides of the park, and we've done that. That's very easy once you get out of the visitor center to get away from everybody very, very easily without any sort of arduous hike. You're right. That's one where one can kind of get away from it all, and you're not far from a major metropolitan area. You know, the the other subject I wanted to turn to a little bit, and I thought this was very impressive with the book is. Again, you spend some time on the science of the parks, too. You mentioned the tidewater glaciers or maybe the shadow effect of the Sierra Nevadas, and there's some great illustrations. When you and your team were working on each of these chapters of the park, how did you ascertain which particular side of the science of the park that you wanted to bring to bear uh, in the book? Well, in some instances, it had something to do with the availability of maps and graphics to support the maps or to support the photographs. And if we had a really compelling graphic, for instance, I keep thinking of the Everglades because I'm planning to go back there again uh, later this winter. There's a graphic that shows the predicted sea level rise in the Everglades. And some of these graphics are so arresting. They're sort of abstract combined with science and they tell you so much of a story, you know, the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words, that I would shy away from going deeply into rising oceans and storm surges in that chapter because we had these graphics that told the, the picture so well. Generally, 
I could choose what I wanted to write about. I, I just had to determine what was germane to each park, what the major issues and draws and, and things to celebrate were about each park. I want to compliment you because each chapter, which encapsulates a park, uh, has the map, has graphics, has the narrative and the text, the photos, right? The, the National Geographic class photos. It's a big book, but those chapters are compact. And so it's a, it's a bit of an art how you were able to fit all those puzzle pieces together to come up with this great book. And we can't thank you enough. It's uh, certainly a tremendous achievement. And, and with that, you know, John, the last thing we ask all of this for our guests, is there a moment, either when you were working on this book, or maybe when you were a ranger, or maybe just on a family trip yourself, where you had a moment in one of these parks where you just stopped in your tracks, it was some sort of, not being melodramatic, a transcendent moment, or just really a moment of awe in these parks where you just stopped and paused and really appreciated where you were. Absolutely, and I've had many of those moments, but the one that comes to mind is Denali, and I used to climb the mountain as a ranger and as a guide and on other private trips and even making a film up there. But I went back three years ago and volunteered on a Park Service patrol. The day that we got to high camp happened to be the eve of my 60th birthday. We had nothing else to tend to, so I roped in with the young bucks, other members of our team, a couple of military medics and a couple of guides, and off we went to the summit and I didn't go all the way to the top. I stopped uh, two feet shy because a long time ago I decided that I didn't need to go to the summit anymore because I felt that putting the summit underneath my feet would not be a respectful act. But there on the summit, one of my companions who had been guiding in Nepal the previous winter took out a kata uh, that had been given to him, him by a Nepalese guide. And it's a ceremonial scarf. And he, there on the summit, he surprised me by taking it out of his pack and wrapping it around my neck. There, just below the, the summit of North America, it, it brought me to tears. Wow, that's a uh, poignant moment and, and a great spot to end on. I think the, uh, the theme of all this is uh, please visit the national parks, but visit with care and give a thought to some of the parks that are not as heavily trafficked because there's, again, there's 61 out there and they're all available for all of us. So uh, give a thought to that. And while you're planning those trips, think about the uh, Atlas of the National Parks by John Waterman. John, thank you very much for your time and explaining a little bit about the book. And again, congratulations on this achievement. It's a, uh, it's a really cool book to have and we're looking forward to having it on our coffee table for years to come. You're very welcome. Get out there and visit those other parks you haven't been to yet. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram 
We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.